Welcome to the Keeping Kids Safe podcast. My name is Karen Cohn. I am the co-founder of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety. This is your number one resource for all things related to your child's emotional, physical, and social well-being. Now I'd like to introduce my co-host and my friend, the executive director of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety, Megan Ferraro. Karen, I'm so excited to welcome to the show our good friend, Executive Director of Diversity and Aquatics and TZF board member, Dr. Miriam Lynch. Hello, and thank you so much for having me a part of your podcast here for today. It is always a great honor to connect with both of you who are doing such great work and progressing the movement into water safety and drowning prevention. And that's that's really been my passion and how I started off with Diversity and Aquatics is that I was a coach in Potomac Valley here in the the D.C. area, and there was a drowning in D.C. uh, that I heard about at one of our swim meets. And it was a four-year-old, and she was found at the bottom of the pool during the summer. It was really crowded, you know, and as lifeguards, there's a lot to do. The hot summer day, and uh, the pool was crowded, and uh, she went missing, and the next thing they knew, they found her. And that hit me really hard because I had just, you know, kind of still healing from my own um, with, I had a friend who drowned when I was in college and to hear about another life that was lost to something that of, I enjoyed the water so much just struck me. And with that, I said, why aren't we doing more as a swimming community into the water safety aspect. Why are we, you know, we have this this great Potomac Valley, just to let you know, here has produced an Olympian that has been on the uh, Olympic team, made the Olympic team for several Olympics, I think since the 1980s. And so with that, we have just a very strong competitive swimming community and to hear about drownings within how strong our community was, was just, it, we just didn't have a great um, match together. And so that's what got me involved in finding out how do we get involved in this? How do we get involved with water safety? And so I connected with DC Parks and Recs. They were very open to uh, doing a water safety festival. They were actually um, to help the community heal and to also be informative about water safety. And we used it as a positive and to show the light of how the water could be utilized in so many different ways and how, how the community could safely um, enjoy the water and what to look out for. And so it happened to be the weekend that we picked was also the opening of a new pool. Um, DC went through a resurgence and um, reformatting some of their pools. And so we did a water safety festival. We had, over 150 people participate from the community in the water safety festival. And uh, with that, how I found the network of people to be our volunteers was through diversity and aquatics and diversity and aquatics was started by Sean Anderson, Dr. Sean Anderson, Jason Jackson as a network and to connect us in that way. And so that's what I was literally on the computer Googling. How do I find Water safety resources. How do I find a scuba diver? How do I find a triathlete? And Diversity Aquatics had the house for it. And that's how we got connected and we pulled it off. And it was a great success for the community to learn about water safety. And since then, it's 10 years later. Can you believe it? (laughs) 
that I've been involved and now have the honor of leading the organization. That's so incredible. And it's, it's one of many amazing attributes that you lend to the community. You just got your doctorate. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I just received my doctorate in May. And so I'm still getting used to the title. Uh, It has been a great journey uh, of growth and knowledge into this realm on the other side. So I was a practitioner, uh, being a coach, being one who has been looking for resources about water safety to now being a part of the field of researchers and writing about it in this realm. And so with that, uh, my dissertation was called The Ripple Effect because I believe that there are so many different um, influences to where we are today with the disparities, with the marginalization of water safety between especially uh, communities of color in this space. And what I did as part of my research was to find out Uh, is take a different approach about finding out why we have these disparities in place and understanding the systemic um, influences that have led to where we are today to understanding those statistics. Um, Because why? my part of my question was why. Why is it that we have a history of strong swimming um, from our African diaspora Uh, towards being pearl divers, towards being a part of using water as part of culture um, to now where water was, where water is just so, where I hear stereotypes that have impacted me as a swimmer. Like, why do you swim? Black people don't swim. Uh, Your hair, um, your, and even the impact of my own journey into swimming, having an uncle who passed away from drowning and then having a friend in college who passed away from drowning. Why was that? Why is it that all these influences impacted? And that's what really led to the study that I did and has been part of my journey in, in the doctorate program. It's really incredible. And we are so pleased to kind of, be watching you along your journey because it's been so incredible over the last three years that I think we've known each other. Um, you've accomplished so much. It's really exciting. It has been, it, it, and you know, and it's, it's a lot due to the support of um, like being able to call up and, and interview and find out more. And I really appreciate the open door and the conversations that we've had. And that's been a part of it is to have that collaborative network of support. So I think you guys are part, being a part of it. Well, you're teaching us so much along the way, right? It's part of what makes us a stronger organization and what makes us stronger as individuals. So we're super grateful to have you as a collaborator. Yes, and I also wanted to say I'm so sorry. I actually never knew the story of the loss of your friend that must have been really horrible, especially considering that you were a swimmer and a coach. Yeah, it's, um, it was, it hit very, um, you know, you don't know. Uh, I was a senior in high school. We all went to prom together. So I will give his name, Donnie Lindsay, um, prominent uh, football player, went to play football at the University of Richmond, uh, great overall person, right? Academically strong, athletically strong, like the whole package of just being, he was always the glue in our group. 
mm-hmm. um, that our friend group that we had. And, you know, a lot of us, we like I was a swimmer and in school. So just having that commonality with somebody that, you know, early morning practices or, you know, having to do, you know, late nights and um, just having that uh, person you can bounce off of and have ideas with. And so, and also being able to go to college, right. So, um, and participate, I went to Howard university and Donnie went to the university of Richmond to play football. And with that, he, part of the, the ritual as many sports teams have is to celebrate the end of the hard season, right, of training camp. And one of the parts was at the University of Richmond, they go into a the lake there. There's a centralized lake around the University of Richmond, very serene, beautiful, and, and this experience that all the football players gather together and go into the lake to celebrate and um, to get ready for the season. And uh, I guess there was a storm the night before. So the muddy, the water and the ground of the lake was not anything that was solid. And so um, they went in and they came out and Donnie didn't come out with them. And what hurt is I didn't know Donnie didn't know how to swim. I didn't know. I'm, I'm a competitive swimmer. I'm D1. I, I swam swim teams. That was not a conversation that we had, like, and to have to say, hey, you should learn how to swim. It just was not into um, his, into our conversations of all the things that we talked about as friends. We talked about, you know, going off to college, the excitement, being a D1 athlete. We talked about, you know, music. We talked about movies. We talked about all those things, but we didn't talk about water safety. And we didn't talk about the fact that I knew how to swim and I could help him and be like that friendly bridge to that world. Um, And talking about the joy of the water that it brought me and all the opportunities that I've had to, you know, going to the ocean and being able to float and do so much with the water. We didn't have those conversations. And to get that call my freshman year where you're supposed to be like, yeah, I'll see you at Thanksgiving. And that was probably one of the hardest Thanksgivings that we had as a friend group Um, because Donnie wasn't there. Our glue wasn't there. And it was something that's so preventable, right? And it must have been so hard for him too to be such a such a great athlete, you know, going to college to play football and not, you know, not even being able to talk about the fact that he didn't know how to swim. And I think, and you know, but at the same time, is that I think we have to have those conversations and be. You hope that we're in this space that we say, "Hey, I don't know how to swim, but you do." Tell me more about it, right? And not the stigma of, oh, I don't know how to swim, so I stay silent. And that's one of the big things that part of the advocacy that I've been a part of and that I'm so honored to partner with the Zach Foundation on is that is reaching communities at where they're at about that water safety message. So we can have conversations and open dialogue that says, that puts it up to the front, right? To say, I don't know how to swim. Where do I go from here? Um, because exactly it, I, uh, there was a part that I quote in my dissertation from uh, Wanda Butts and her son uh, drowned tragically in his teenage years um, on the lake um, from a boat flipping over and she learned how to swim later on. But her part was like in saying that, wow, you know what? 
I taught my son everything. I taught him about how to be safe when you're in a car. I taught my son how to be safe when crossing the street. I taught him all these things about where it being safe, but water safety wasn't part of that conversation. And that's, that's the biggest one is that we do need to have those conversations because drowning, guess what, is top 10 across all age groups. And in our youth, it's the top three. And we talk about motor vehicle. We talk about poison control. We talk about falling. But guess what falls right in between those is water drownings. And we have to talk about water safety with it too. That's why we also feel like it's so important that younger children are taught to swim so that they don't get to the point where they feel ashamed or embarrassed for not knowing how to swim. Absolutely. We, the younger, it's like um, thinking about like the big thing that came out was Earth Day with my sister. And she's the one who influenced us to recycle a lot. And they start young and you keep it repeating and repeating and repeating and it becomes habit, right? And that habit becomes part of who you are, your character. So I absolutely agree with you, Karen. We've got to start them young so that they become the influence like that for for other families. Absolutely. And then life jackets, you know, we can't encourage our children enough to wear life jackets when they're on open water and when they end, when they don't, whether they know how to swim or not, but then also if they don't know how to swim. That's the thing. You want your kids to be like how we are in cars with life jackets. Wait, don't go anywhere. I got to put on my seatbelt. That's what my goddaughter says. <laughs> you know, she's the one like, don't start the car. We got to put on our seatbelts, right? We want kids to have that same feeling with life jackets. Like, wait, 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 I'm in, we're going near water. Don't, do we have our life jacket? You're absolutely right, Karen. You know, I have young kids at home and Karen has heard me share this little anecdote a million times, but, you know, I can teach my nine-month-old not to touch a hot cup of coffee or a hot stove. I can teach my four-year-old not to go near the busy street. They all know they need to put their seatbelts on. And so there's no reason that we can't include water safety messaging at a very young age. Um, And not that that's the only layer of protection, but it has to be one of the layers of protection that we as parents utilize, whether it's for our one-year-old or for our 17-year-old, right? Reminding them the rules of, of how to be safe around water. I'm sure, Karen, you're doing some of that with your 16-year-old as he learns to drive independently. It's not like those rules go out the window once he got the car keys. So it's just needs to become a part of the fabric of how we parent in our country. Absolutely. And my 14-year-old just got home from camp and she went and she started spending some time. Um, we've also talked about this in some of the other podcasts, but she went and she spent some time at her friend's house who lives on open water. She lives on the Long Island Sound and they were paddleboarding the other day. And my first question is, did you have your life jacket on? <laughs> and she did. And so did her friend. So, you know, they've been They've been taught and reminded to have them on, but still I feel like I have to remind her every day and every time she's near the water. So you're a great friend. That is what we have to have those conversations and make sure like, by the way, 
did you make, do this? Because that's what we, we have to build that dialogue amongst each other. That's absolutely. So one of the things that I would, I wanted to talk with you about is these coded policies and the, you know, the history of coded language that's used in aquatic policies. And so I am not really that familiar with them. And I would love to hear from your perspective about those. Sure. Uh, Coded policies. It's something that we, it's used to disguise uh, the, and create underlining rules that communities can't, you know, that are, are exclude communities, especially communities of color. Um, you know, coded policies have been a part of our fabric here in the United States when it became associated with you can't, you can't say uh, with Plitzy and Ferguson, right? Separate um, and equal. So it says, okay, well, we can't have that out loud, but we're going to start making, well, you have to live in a certain area in order to take these services. So we'll make a policy and we'll code it um, in a way that it isn't explicitly said, but we had undertones that um, exclude communities from being a part. Uh, you may have things like what has recently happened with the cats that um, the FINA regulation with soul cap and not, not being allowed as part of the Olympics. Uh, the coded policy says that, oh, it does not conform to the natural form of the head. Well, guess what? I just took out, I had braids for the summer and I could have used one of the cats. Um, I'm an, um, I would consider myself, I'm not an elite swimmer. I never made it to the Olympics, but I did make it to national level. And that could have been a cap that I would have used because I had braids, I needed the extra um, height, you know, just to have that in my hair. But you, when you say it doesn't conform to the natural form of the head, those are examples of being coded that um, take out communities, especially communities of, of color that impact them for participating um, or having the tools to participate in aquatics. Um, when you say, for instance, when we had our statement about coded policies about swimsuit wear and how that excludes um, women, let's say Muslim women from being able to participate in aquatics um, sports because you have to have a suit that's a certain way or that has a certain makeup that fits a certain body type. Uh, Those are ways that you're creating policies that exclude certain communities from participating And we have to be very mindful and careful about what policies we put in place. Are they excluding? We're going through it now with COVID, right? Um, And let's talk about swimming pool access and some of the coded policies that happen that a lot of private pools uh, may have policies. Well, we can open because we're private. We're not a public um, entity. But if we go into a public pool, which creates access for all, um, we have different pot, like, oh, you can only swim two per lane, or guess what, we're closed at this time. Those are policies that 
further create this marginalization in this space. And so I think one of my, my big calls and from us at diversity and aquatics and what I've, I've said to other coalitions is that we need to take a reflective look at the policies in which we are stating to make sure they aren't coded um, and they aren't exclusive in the way that we do things. Because a lot of times what we do in aquatics is we put the onus on the individual. Well, we have this and you have to abide by these rules in place instead of looking at it reflectively in aquatics as those who are in those us in the leadership positions to say, what are we doing to exclude? And we have to just reverse it. And that's what I think is amazing is that being a part and learning more of what, what has been happening with the Zach foundation has been, Hey, we are asking communities where what is needed. We are asking for that reflective practice in place and to partner with diversity and aquatics with other organizations to say, Hey, how do we do this better? That's the first part is asking those questions so that we make sure that we have a diverse table and set so we can ensure the policies that we're setting or that we are implementing are the right ones for the people that we're serving. Well said. So as it relates to those swim caps, you know, there was a lot of um, conversation about that this summer. And can you tell us where did, was there any um, evolution of FINA's stance on, on the swim caps? Do you expect there to be a change? Where, where did that land? So from what I hear so far is that they are reevaluating things within the swim cap. Uh, there's much more to it um, from my understanding of things or my, as a swimmer, I'll, I'll take my hat for there is that we do need to make, be transparent with the process of how to do this because it's not just soul cap. There's so many caps out there that fit underneath that realm. And there's so much more broader um, resources that need to be evaluated, suits, um, caps, um, how and what FINA is funding. Those all are things that need to be evaluated. What I think of it is that it has opened the door for dialogue, right? Like we weren't having this type of dialogue before this incident happened. And now we are, um, it has opened the door for us to, to come in and say, hey, by the way, you're talking about caps and you are saying, hey, caps aren't, uh, these type of caps aren't allowed. Why? What is the, what is the process? What is the application? Let's be transparent. Um, but by the way, since we're talking about this, let's also talk about these other ways that it, it is creating further marginalization and participation into the sport. And so with that, I think that's where we are right now in the process is that it is being reevaluated, but it's also creating great dialogue within the swimming community, within the aquatics community to say, uh, hey, what, what, else is, what else is happening in this space? Um, and so my hopes are from FINA in going forward is that it, they have a better idea of the community of swimming that is now becoming further enlarged. And I, I saw an article the other day that now 
then with the last Olympics and with what has happened with SoulCap, now they are looking at different funding structures and especially putting into the continent, um, continent of Africa and certain countries, they are pouring in some increased funding so that we can, uh, there is more diversity in the sport and creating spaces um, there for more countries to participate. Look forward to seeing what that looks like in the years to come. Me too. Me too. I mean, it is exciting. I mean, there's, there's been such strong swimming. Um, I know for a lot, I'll tell you my own Howard story into it is that I had teammates from Nigeria, right? I had teammates from um, the islands, the Caribbean. I had teams and actually a teammate of mine, she represented Nigeria on the Olympic team. And it's amazing to see what swimming was, is like overseas. Like for instance, I'll tell you this guy, his name's Afalabi. Love him to death. Uh, Here in the United States, we swim short course. We swim yards. And um, overseas, they swim meters, long course. And of course, in college seasons, flip terms. <laughs> and just to hear the stories and to hear the, and to share that into that space and the rich, there's such great richness in swimming um, in different countries across. I went to, I saw, um, I went to Egypt two years ago and got to see the Egyptian national team where they practice. And, you know, swimming's huge. Um, and they have uh, synchronized and just see all of that and culturally rich to see that now FINA is looking to pour more money into supporting programs like that um, is that is the first step, right? Um, And for it. So I look forward to seeing as well what the progression is. The evolution of this space, it feels like it's happening at a faster pace than ever before. Um, I've been doing this work for I think 11 years now and it felt so stagnant for a while like you were I can't even say pushing a boulder up a hill because it wasn't even that it was harder than that and now it feels like things are moving and everyone's working together and when we see something so incredibly unjust happening there's movement positive movement it may be slow but it is it changes is occurring which is so wonderful and you know to that end and, and really thinking about the work that we do, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, and we've touched on it a little bit so far, but I wondered why you think drowning rates are highest among African-Americans and other historically marginalized, marginalized communities here in the U.S. Yeah, I, um, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. And it's, there are so many different influences and we, we did touch on a little bit of it during our discussions, but a lot of it is, is in place because of part of American history and its relationship to African-Americans into this and as a part of it. And so that's hence why I called mine the ripple effect is that swimming isn't isolated or aquatics and how it's been influenced isn't isolated to just the pool. It is greatly influenced by policies and culture that has been put in place as a part of our American history. Um, When we have things that we have segregated policies and practices, uh, think about uh, where there there was great swimming, you know, uh, and all the touch points. You know, I, I cite in there in the 1919 part of Red Summer in Chicago, 
where you have Lake Michigan. It's probably one of the hottest summers, right? Um, during and it's after World War One. Soldiers are coming home. You want to cool off during the summer. You are. We are starting to experience more integration within communities because of um, economic statuses are starting to more equalize after the war. And so you have, um, and then in addition, you put heat in place, you put water to cool you off. And there was a young man who went to Lake Michigan, a young black um, young man who went to swim and there was a color line, black swim on this side, white swim on this side. And he crossed it and he was stoned in the water. And how the community there and what it caused in Chicago and had to do with swimming. And you have marks along the way. Um, You think about Emmett Till and how he was found at the bottom of the river um, after just whistling to a white woman. And how the water is symbolic in that and the relation and the impact it makes on the African-American community. All these things have ripple effects on how the relationship of the Black community has towards water. You have uh, things such as, um, even if there were pools that were integrated, you have riots that are ensuing um, because we didn't want race to mix. We have um, pools that were closed in certain communities um, because funding or um, resources not being able to be there. You have items such as uh, later on towards the 1950s, 1960s, while you have a fluctuation of municipal pools, you also have a part of it, there's this um, out of the cities comes white flight, and this is suburbia, right, and starting to develop. I live here in Washington, D.C. I'm part of Northern Virginia. I grew up in Northern Virginia Swim League, and that's actually part of white flight, which was the whole purpose with white flight was moving to suburbia and then they privatized access to pool areas to neighborhoods. And when you have things such as redlining that impacts funding for neighborhoods to receive social services that involves parks and recs and access greatly influences how we engage with aquatics. Um, You know, Thaddeus Gamry, who's a great historian in South Florida greatly talks about uh, two historical black beaches. But guess what? The access to get to those historical black beaches was very hard to get to. So you have, and then if you had access, you it, the pool was small, or if you could find something, it was in an area that wasn't safe to swim. Um, and so all these things influenced how we have the disparity and marginalization today. It all had a ripple effect. Um, And we see it as part of education. And that's what I used as my comparative analysis was that what we saw in education and the disparities and marginalization we see in education, uh, we also see in aquatics. And the policies that are set from the federal level and trickle all the way down to the local level greatly influence where we are today um, with aquatics. And so one of my big things has been to to highlight that influence, the systemic part of it. So if we expose that systemic part, then we we can start working on it. You don't know until you know, right? And so we have to identify it, 
these systemic influences, such as the policies we've set in place that have created um, great um, gaps in aquatics that have led us to here. The privatization was a huge one. And that's also going back to Karen, what you said about coded policies that, oh, you have to live in this neighborhood to be able to access this pool. And guess what? That's still happening today. Still today, people last summer, we heard those stories of a family trying to go to pool. Oh, you don't live here. You're not from my neighborhood. You, and not being able to access the pool. Still today, those still are happening. So that's what, and so when you have things like that, why would you want to go to a pool? You have enough challenges against you. Why do you want to be harassed in something that should be part of your joy? So terrible to hear about that in our country and so incredibly hard to imagine what it must feel like to be faced with that. And so, you know, we all are thinking about the solution, right? What, what can we do to help level the playing field so that everyone has access to what is really a joyful experience, right? Learning to swim, being a confident swimmer, spending time with your family around water, as a way of, of taking exercise and, and living a healthy lifestyle, right? They say that there's, it's the best sport for the lifetime of your body, right? It's something you can do in your eighties and it's low impact and it's a great way to spend time with friends and family and, and get exercise. So many of us in this space are thinking about this and trying to figure out how to help level the playing field. I wish I could say level the swimming pool, but <laughs> it's a different connotation. So when you think about that, what, what, what comes to mind? I think one of the things is the awareness part. And that's what I've been a big advocate about and what I, again, just being in the space with others, you know, such as American Red Cross, you, the Zach Foundation and um, the Aquatics Coalition has been that we are trying to increase that first step. The first step is awareness. And we have to, um, also with the messaging with the awareness, we have to also bring the possibilities of when you learn how to swim, uh, not only the safety part, but all the things that you can do once you um, learn to swim. And I think that's all of us, it's, it's so amazing to be on these calls and each of us are so passionate and we all have our own journey about how we came into this space, but being able to share that and having that dialogue, but also creating spaces to have that with communities. I think the way that we um, do this going forward is listening to the needs of the community because everybody's going to be different in the needs that are happening right now. We're going through a, it is a gray area in aquatics uh, to safely say is that where we are in a space where we are having lifeguard shortages. Where do we go from here? We have a different way that we have to talk about water safety because of COVID and its impact to where pools are open or closed. It's having an impact on instructors and getting uh enough instructors in place and how we give instruction. We're just in this grayish area and every community has a different need 
for based upon where they are. A rural community is going to be different from an urban community. And guess what? Even urban communities are going to have differentiations about what the needs are in that space. But what we have to do is now in aquatics, what I really have loved with the work that we're doing as a part of the National Water Safety Action Plan and as a part of the Aquatics Coalition, which we both sit on both of those, the work that's being done there is that we are trying to um, create dialogues on not only in aquatics, which is the first time we've been able to do that, um, to have that amongst all of the collaboration and the work between organizations where we aren't so individualized or isolated in our work towards the same goal, right? We're all in the same goal of saving lives. But also having, and what we are looking at is outside of ourselves. And we're looking to our communities to give us feedback. I think being in this gray area and having the lifeguard shortages, we are being more innovative than we've ever been before. So we don't, I, I, what I love about our groups in the dialogue is what is the possibilities? We're not defeated by it, but what is possible? How do we outside? Like I'm hearing things like, shoot, I wish I was going back from my lifeguard and cause guess what? We're giving incentives. We're going to pay for you to be a lifeguard and we're going to increase, or we're going to do these things, or we're going to make sure these things we're the dialogue of innovativeness is so important in this space. And we're going into our communities, we're reaching out, we're having the letters to the governors, we're having the letters to mayors, we're having the media presence. And that is so important to, to now getting that awareness piece that I started off with to getting us to the next phase, right? And so we're, we, we have to now connect to our community because no longer are we just sustainable on all, all on our own. We've got to utilize the resources that are given to us and where we're at. So I think I, that's it. I think one of the things too is recently just the water safety and drowning prevention community joining together, which didn't exist before. Um, you know, especially at the beginning when Megan was talking about how hard it was at the beginning, we weren't able to have these conversations with each other. And now they're happening, which is driving some of that momentum and moving everything forward for the community, you know, at large. And so I think that's really helping, you know, obviously we keep saying that we have a long way to go, but at least we feel the progression that's happening. Yeah. I, I fully agree. I think it's one of those, um, you know, uh, it, the problem has created the solution and it has created for us this opportunity. And you're absolutely right. Like we, we were turning well on our own. Karen, we were a lot of, you know, and I, I credit, you know, a lot with the Zach Fund because you guys were a part of the, hey, reaching across the aisles to others, like with the American Red Cross and the work that you're doing with the app. And that was before COVID, right? And um, reaching out to us and saying, like, what do you need? What, what can we help with? And that was important. But now as a whole coalition, you're absolutely right, Karen, is that it has made us sit back and work even harder together so that it's not just one or two, it's everybody at the table together. And it's bringing in some of those outside organizations that previously didn't have 
a focus on water safety and drowning prevention, right? Like the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, for example, or, um, you know, some of our other partners that have really been focused on this work in a new way. You know, you see um, sometimes Walmart is getting involved in this space and, and, and part of that is the Consumer Product Safety Commission and the Pool Safely campaign and really just collaboration across different government agencies, collaboration across different private companies, and then nonprofits like American Red Cross, Diversity in Aquatics, the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, and really having these huge brands like yours talking about this issue in really creative ways, right? I mean, you saw this was a huge challenge and something you wanted to take on in your life. You're a school teacher. You decided to get your PhD. You're doing all this work on top of your full-time job. I'm sure not because it's glamorous, right? Because it's so important. And it's that type of passion that is driving the change in this space. My biggest part is, and I think all of us is what's common, especially with the three of us on here today, is that we love swimming. We love what the water brings for us. And that's, but we want others to have that same experience. And our own stories of what brought us into the space um, is what fuels us into it. And that's why, you know, Karen, I just, when I heard your story and what all that you were doing, it's, it's also what helps to pick me too and say, Hey, let's all, we're all in this together. We can all make that difference. And that's so important. And it's so, and to have kids from all ages and even adults to enjoy the water as much as we do. I mean, come on, like to float in the, you know, the, in a pool and the sun and all those things. We want everybody to have those opportunities. We don't want water to be the barrier because you don't know how to swim or there's not safe mechanisms in place. And if we, and we all, if we're all into it because we're like, Hey, I can't, I think we can fix this. I think we can do something about this. And why not? Why not try? One of the things that you mentioned earlier is just in addressing the historic inequities in minorities learning how to swim. Um, And you have had the opportunity this year to participate in this exhibit that's going to be opening up next week. And it's called Pool, a Social History of Segregation and we're thrilled that we're going to be able to come and uh, participate in the opening that is happening next week. And we just wanted to hear a little bit more about it. Absolutely. First, I am greatly honored that our organization is a part of it. Um, we, uh, we have a big contingency in Philadelphia, and it's led by one of our chair um, Chair people, our board members, sorry. Uh, His name is Coach Jim Ellis, um, infamous coach in Philadelphia. Um, I had the honor of uh, swimming with him for a couple summers. And with that, that's how we're involved together with him and Diversity Aquatics. And also Dr. Angela Beal, who's also a big researcher in this space of public health and water safety. She is a professor out of Rowan University. And so with that, the, the exhibit, um, how huge this is, right, to document the rich history and being able to connect to people like Coach Jim Ellis 
and Dr. Angela Biel. And then for us to also be a part of a, a contribution through diversity and aquatics and the history that we have through all of our members and researchers and practitioners and enthusiasts to be involved with something as big as it is. It's huge because it's not only talking about water safety, but it's also giving a big um, historical aspect and art form. It's a combination of like what we as teachers would be like that blended learning experience, right? So that if you're a history buff, uh, you get that. If you are an art buff, you are getting that. But it's all surrounded about the water. And it's with this pool, this historical pool, um, it's Waterworks in Philadelphia, and the rich history of the Waterworks pool, um, the rich history, like Philadelphia, if you look back um, in the history of Philadelphia and swimming, they were one of the leading um, cities that used the water as a part of public health, um, where they had more pools at one point and areas of water than anywhere else in the country. It, things were modeled after Philadelphia. And so to have Victoria and what she's done to highlight the rich history of it while including art into it and, and more inside a pool that you were going to be able to walk through in a couple of weeks is quite incredible. And it's a great honor to even be a small piece into uh, the amazingness that's happening. Cause I've heard she's got um, like Cullen Jones, uh, she's got Maritza McClendon who are huge part of the forward movement of Olympians that are involved with this. Um, and to say like, this is where these are huge milestones and look where, how far we've come and how far we need to go as well. Yes, I loved when I um, was reading about it and it said, you know, that it was um, the exhibit's goal is deepening the understanding of the connection between water, social justice, and public health. And I think that's so well said, and I'm so looking forward to seeing it. I think it's going to be really educational for us. Yeah, I, I look forward to it. It's I, I don't think there is something like that in that in this space that highlights aquatics quite like how it is going to do. Um, and to have something that celebrates it but also brings awareness to um, all the things that you know that have happened that have led us to where we are. So important. So yes, you're absolutely right. That is the perfect explanation about um this exhibit that's coming up and it's going to be open for a full year, which is going to be um, incredible. And just so exciting that we're going to get to see each other in person. I can't wait. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know to see people in person is just amazing. And I think that's the part that for us in, in swimming is that we've missed, right? Because we've had so many regulations and so many ways of how we can participate in it. And swimming has always, we've been on this um, kind of afterthought of, of policies with COVID, like, hey, we're just going to close the pool. That's the safest thing. And, and you're absolutely right that for public health reasons, that's safe. Um, but we're also finding out there's a lot of evidence that um, we recycle air through our pools. Chlorine is a big advocate. And so to now 
we didn't, when you take away swimming, that's a lot. And so to be now in a space that celebrates swimming with great people, um, it's going to be quite incredible. Well, thank you for your time today, Miriam. This was so, uh, what a wonderful use of an hour and what a nice way to send us into our weekend. Um, We really appreciate your time um, educating us on all of these important topics and looking forward to continuing this conversation over the months and years to come. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I really always an honor to be working with both of you. And Miriam, yes, thank you so much for the rich conversation. It was great. This is Megan Ferraro and Karen Cohn from the Zach Foundation. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. 